Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Help support this network and become a member. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for details. It's just $7.99 USD per month or save on an annual membership. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support education and outreach. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 180. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we discuss a recent paper that uses open source protocols. Let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everyone. Paul, how you doing? Ah, I'm doing pretty good. I was just out in the yard playing with a sifting screen that I made that I haven't had the chance to use in the field, but my wife needed some compost sifted. So I got to play archaeologist for a little bit in the yard. That was a lot of fun. How you doing? I'm doing good. I just got to comment on that real quick because that is a great use of a screen, right? And as... You're going to hear on this podcast, because I think the ad is still running, we have a contest that we're running for anybody who mentions us on social media. You have to at us on social media or we don't see it, you know, so at ArcPodNet or anybody who's currently a member or refers a member or becomes a new member by the end of the month gets to choose any screen they want from AEO Screen. It's a website. In fact, I think they're, if I had to get, I think they're based out of New England somewhere. If I remember right, I might be thinking of somebody else, but either way, they've said that you can pick anything off of their website and you might be thinking, well, I'm not an archaeologist. What do I need a screen for? And thank you, Paul, for illustrating an exact use of a screen. <laughs> that you may yeah, no, I mean, need oh, those are beautiful looking screens they've got on their site. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So no, no, they're really handy the um, in the yard for a lot of things, especially if you're an avid gardener like my wife is. Not that she uses a screen, but I guess I do now. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, I hadn't intended to talk about that, but you led me right into it. So that was perfect. (laughs) (laughs) We're doing great. We're out in Seaside, Oregon. It's a kind of a neat little coastal town that was actually established in 1899, I think. And they've got this really cool, you know, promenade. It's just south of uh, Astoria, Oregon. And Astoria, a lot of people know, maybe not by name, but that's where the movie Goonies was filmed. So that's ah. how people usually know Astoria. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you can actually go to the house. They have signs leading up to it that says, you know, hey, people live here. So be respectful. <laughs> Don't like drapes around in the yard. <laughs> but, you know, either way, you can see it from the road. But oh, that's cool. All right. Yeah. Well, speaking of seeing stuff from the road, except not really, it's going to be a drone heavy drone heavy episode this time around with the article we have and the and the topic we're going to talk about at least the first part is going to be drone heavy so hope you got your uh hope you got your drinks ready paul what are we talking about today okay well i think probably when i was away in iraq you were asking me for some topics and there was an an edition of the uh advances in archaeological practice that came out in november and it was chock full of really interesting articles to me and so you know as you recall last episode we recorded about the hedgehogs and marvelous minds which came out of that same edition the same issue and 
one of the other ones I pulled aside that I thought might be good to talk about was uh, an article called Methodological Framework for Free and Open Source UAV-Based Archaeological Research. And, uh, you know, of course, that uh, free and open source, that, is, you know, ding, that's one check for me. Mm-hmm. UAV-based, well, there's another check for me. <laughs> and uh, the co-authors are Kelsey M. Reese and Sean Field. And Sean Field was another ding for me because we actually interviewed him here on Architect back in episode 117 in November of 2019, when he discussed nice. work he was doing at Chaco Road Network. And it was, uh, for my money, it was a very interesting discussion. And it was a very interesting article that that came out of too. So I wanted to see what they had to say about, uh, about this framework. And as I read it, as I started reading the article, I actually started going in a slightly different direction. So at first glance, I thought that it's going to be a lot like that Hedgehog article, but it turned out to be something really for me, quite different. The previous one, that Hedgehog article, was more of a, a show and tell. This one was more of a justification for a particular tool set and a particular workflow, along with a link to instructions to reproduce that tool set and workflow. Right. And that got me thinking about a whole bunch of other things that weren't directly in the article, but were spurred, you know, ideas that, that popped up because of this article. And as I've said a million times, that's something I like when something, you know, tickles my fancy and starts making me think about other things that may or may not be related and how they can interrelate and, you know, how they can make the practice of what we do better. You know, at the very least, it's some fun thought exercises, but at the very best, it's, uh, it's practical things that I can incorporate into my own work. Yeah. And that's what I love about some of these articles too, right? Is I always, I always love taking things that you may not think have a a practical use for the, you know, the science of archaeology, but there, then again, it does, you know, and sometimes it takes a suite of tools like these guys' approach, you know, if if you want to do it free and affordably, because what they mention is in the, in the beginning of the article is using drones to augment and maybe in the future replace archaeological survey, like pedestrian survey, in some cases, maybe like the full scale survey. And I've actually talked about this. I was pretty excited when I when I at least started with the abstract. I was like, wait, what a minute. They're they're ta- they're actually talking about something that that I've been talking about for years. But, I've, you know, I've never <laughs> done a study on it or actually completed it. Just been an idea since doing survey in China Lake uh, down in California. But anyway, I love that they're they're taking this approach because, like they say, the barrier to entry is often cost, you know, and Photoscan. What do they call it now? Um, Agisoft Photoscan. I still call it that, but it's called uh, Metashape. Metashape. That's right. And it's really expensive to use that. And it's not, you know, it's not necessarily user friendly unless you're used to those types of softwares, but it's expensive. And, you know, it's kind of the Cadillac of, of doing this kind of stuff. But as they show there's other ways to do it. It might take a suite of tools that Metashape just does, you know, because they've got it all built mm-hmm. in. But that's what we're talking about. So uh, excellent. Good on them for, for bringing this to light. Yeah. And what they do is they compare Metashape against Open Drone Map, which is another photogrammetry tool specifically catered towards uh, towards drone mapping. And right. these are both excellent. It's not, it's not a one is better than the other. Uh, one is definitely less expensive than the other. But they want mm-hmm. to have a system of testing a way of doing their work that they could then document so that it could replicable, which is really what, what got me interested in this. It's that idea of documenting things in such a way that they are replicable because we'd like to pretend in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways we are in archaeology scientists, 
And one of mm-hmm. the key components of science versus other human endeavors is replicability of, of tests. And, you know, so it's often been said that, you know, you can't re-excavate a site. So you have to document everything. So we don't, we, right. you know, when it comes to excavation, you don't have that replicability that you might have with running another, you know, chemistry test, for example. Right. Right. But that's not the only thing that we do. We do all sorts of other kinds of work. And the idea of documenting how you do it so that you don't have to think through every last step. And so that, you know, if I do it and I've got it documented and then the next person that takes over the task or they read what I've done and they apply it to their site, they don't have to reinvent the wheel. That is a different kind of replicability, but it is one that I think really benefits our field. Mm -hmm. You know, and this is nothing new, but- here they are talking about it in an open access journal article. Good for them. T- yep. Talking about using it with free and open source software. Good for them. That lowers the barriers for entry. And with links then that go from this article back to the protocol. And if I haven't used that word yet, protocol, the way that I'm going to be using it whenever I mention it today is uh, this notion of it's basically a set of instructions, right? Mm-hmm. And so in lots of different scientific endeavors, definitely in medicine, you have protocols. You do things X, Y, and Z. You do step one, step two, step three. Maybe it's a decision tree, but you follow along so that you can always get things in the same way. Right. So they have a link then from their article back out to the protocol that they've got hosted on GitHub, which means that that protocol is also open. And that's Mm -hmm. where I started thinking about other things because I've been receiving all sorts of, I guess the algorithm is throwing them at me. Sometimes it shows up in Twitter. Sometimes it shows up on my (laughs) newsfeed, but different open source protocols, not necessarily using open source software, but the protocols themselves are open source for different Mm -hmm. kinds of archaeological work. And that's where this really started to, you know, to make me think a little broader, not the specifics of what they were doing, though I should probably talk about that a bit, but how what they're doing also serves as a model for what I think is a good way for us all to be working. Right. Uh, So I'm going to actually reel us back here a little bit for what what they do, uh, I don't think they get really to the point of identifying archaeological sites, but mm-hmm. they choose an area called the uh, the Mesa Verde North Escarpment, which is uh, slope terrain that's adjacent just to the north of Mesa Verde Na- National Park. And across that area, they chop it up into different squares and they categorize those squares by the uh, by the density of the ground cover. And then they choose four different squares that they determine our you know, of a size that they can fly them in a certain number of batteries. And then those different squares, those four squares are uh, four different densities of, of ground cover, low, medium, medium high, and, and extreme, <laughs> extreme mm-hmm. ground cover. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, they, they, fly their drones, they get their thing. And most of the protocol actually has to do with the what you do with those photographs and how you process them. But they also do a side-by-side comparison of the results they got with the settings that they use with open drone map versus those that they used with, uh, with Metashape to show that open drone map is entirely a good replacement for their case. Yeah. And then again, the, the, the real meat of it for me is that if you go to that GitHub page, you can then see step-by-step step how to install the exact same software. You can download their sample images and then 
Test it yourself on your own hardware. See how long it takes. See if this is going to be a workable workflow. Maybe adjust it a little bit for yourself. That That is a huge value for people. So we don't all have to reinvent the wheel. We don't all have to start at ground zero and try to figure out each bit of not just how to use the software, but if you're using open source software, a lot of it, getting it onto your computer is a hassle. And so they mm-hmm. you know, tell you how it's a very easy way to do it if you're running a Mac. Nice, nice. Yeah, it, it was well, a well done like how-to guide. And I f- in fact, I think it was in, if I remember uh, pulling up the article here again, it's uh, it's in their how-to series anyway. So they they mm-hmm. had a really good like, you know, step-by-step. And a couple of things I want to point out <laughs> in one of their figures, figure three, they actually have side-by-side open drone map. And then it says Agisoft Photoscan. Like they changed the name of that what, like four or five years ago, <laughs> I thought. But everybody still calls it Agisoft Photoscan, which I think is hilarious. They're, they're never going to get yeah, rid of that yeah. name from all the from yeah. all the, the <laughs> professional users. But uh, <laughs> and, and you mentioned that they didn't really do artifact analysis or feature analysis, I should say, on those images. Mm-hmm. They did do a ground survey, like a pedestrian ground survey after the fact, after they you know flew their drones. And the ground survey identified some features. And I thought it was really interesting in figure four of the article, seeing those features drawn on one of the maps versus you know the side by side where it's not drawn and the side where it is drawn. And I'll tell you what, some of them are relatively obvious when you see them and others are not so obvious when you see them. And I'm not sure that if I were looking at this, I could pick it out, but I'm not the one that has to be convinced, right? Because ultimately the 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 end goal of this kind of thing, once we kind of nail down drone survey and we get the resolutions down, we get the, the flying heights down and we figure out, okay, this is the best way to do this for the imagery. Well, now mm-hmm. we got to do something with that imagery. And, yeah. you know, having a person look at it and identify features is one thing, but teaching a computer and an AI to do it would be a totally other thing. And that would be kind of the way to go. And then ground truth it by archeologists. That's what I've been saying for years. And I think we're finally starting to get to the point where this is possible. Yeah, I think it is. And I don't think I'm giving up any trade secrets, but the project I'm going to be working on for the next couple of months in Saudi, that's one component of it. There are mm-hmm. a number of known archaeological sites that we're going to visit, but there are we're expecting to find other sites. And part of that finding the other sites is to work on building a machine learning environment that can identify right. additional sites. You know, So it'll be yeah. a combination of first person in field on foot data collection that we feed back to the GIS team that tries to generate models that they'll send back to us to test, right? And so it'll be a, right. ref- a process of refinement. And that's what they're doing in this article too. They just, that's not the point of this article, mm-hmm. uh, but it's clearly gearing up to something like that. And that's what they use for part of the test. I thought it was interesting that those side by sides, for my eyes, the open drone map ones actually looked better than the uh, photo scan, <laughs> than the photo scan ones. Uh, and I think the reason is, is that the open drone map ones were a little smoother. Yeah. And I think they they're a little smoother. smoother because their resolution isn't quite as high, which actually is a good thing for this particular use case. Mm-hmm. Because what we're talking about here, remember, this is different ground covers. We're looking at digital digital terrain models, not digital elevation models. And so that right. becomes a software thing. Well, it's all a software thing, but right. So you, <laughs> you stitch together your your structure for motion, your, your photogrammetric images, and you get your digital elevation model. And it shows you the elevations at the top of all the bushes, for example. 
Right. Uh, that's usually not what you really care about. You want the bottom of the bushes. So the digital terrain model strips out those anomalies. And, you know, there are a bunch of different ways for it to do that. And some may be more successful than others. Some mm-hmm. may be overly aggressive, but in those side by sides, I always saw the features that they were highlighting that they traced. Uh, I saw them better in the open drone map ones. Right. Okay. Well, I personally like the crisper images myself, the mm-hmm. smoother ones. I, they do have a certain, I don't know, appealing look to them because they are smoothed out. And then the, the photo scan ones, again, like you said, were a little more crisp and, and they're a little more abrasive from that standpoint. But I, I felt it personally easier to see stuff, especially if you, I mean, I zoomed in on the PDF. I don't have the original images, but I'm assuming if you zoom in on the original images, especially inside the software, you're going to see some incredible detail on both of those. And from the looks of just these images in the article, maybe even more detail in the photo scan one, which from an AI perspective, I don't know if that's better or worse for it to be doing shape recognition. You know, Uh, is it better to have a higher definition in detail so it can really pick them out? Or does that add more artifact, so to speak, like soft, like digital artifacts to the image where it can't really pick them out. But if it's smoother, it can, it can pick up these, you know, identifiable shapes in this particular context a little better. Who knows? Anyway, let's go ahead and take a break and continue discussing this article on the other side. If you like hearing stuff like this, don't forget to go to arcpodnet.com forward slash members to help support us for just $7.99 a day or less if you buy it annually. And it really helps and, and keeps all this going and, you know, keeps Paul going to Saudi Arabia. No, it doesn't pay for that. But I'd like to think that it would send us to other places at some point in the future so we can so we can really get some boots on the ground podcasting. All right, with that, we'll see you guys on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome back to episode 180 of the Archaeotech podcast. And we're talking about an article that you can find by looking down at your device or looking at your computer screen, whatever you happen to be on, and uh, look at the show notes for that. So you can see the link to the article and uh, a bunch of other links that we have in there that are mentioned and some other stuff that, that we just have in there. So check all that out. One of the things that is linked in there that is discussed in the article quite a bit, Paul, is the FOSS UAV protocol. And I keep seeing FOSS and 
free and open source in like the same context. And I keep thinking FOSS mm-hmm. is like some sort of acronym for free and open source. Is it free and open source software? Is that what FOSS stands for? Yeah, exactly. Got it. I was just making sure. All right. So with that, let's continue. All right. So you were looking at that presumably then on the uh, on the GitHub link, which like I said, that's they've got their actual yep. protocol not in this article. They link to the protocol and the, right. the article itself is a discussion about the protocol and about their development of the protocol and about uh, it's a justification that the protocol works, damn it. (laughs) And it really got me to think about documentation because that's something that gets overlooked a lot in software, Mm -hmm. but good documentation is really, really important. And it's something that you and I know very uh, intimately because we deal with documentation all the time. I mean, I know that you have to deal with it in your training with Dunsafe and, uh, and you've dealt with it with, uh, with WildNote. I had to deal with it, especially when I left my last job, uh, documenting a lot of the procedures of how to get this to work or where to look for that thing when something goes wrong. Yeah. For the survey I just did in Lagash, I wrote up an instruction manual for the, for doing the surface survey. Nice. And I've mentioned my surveying software that I that I uh, put up on GitHub very recently. And when I put it up on GitHub, the biggest thing I did was do a a, a quick start instruction set in the README. Mm-hmm. So documentation to us is something that is really really important. But we're typically talking about documentation of, of a piece of software. And what this article is talking about is not a piece of software, but how to use a dozen different pieces of software, how <laughs> to install those different pieces of software, how to configure those pieces of software to make them run to to make that reproducible result. Again, tying it back to that reproducibility mm-hmm. goal of, uh, of good science. Yeah. And I don't even know what I want to say about this in particular, other than it, it was exciting for me to see, I guess in part, because like I said, I've been getting all these different similar adjacent notices in my various social feeds and such about other projects that are documenting their procedures. Mm-hmm. How deeply have you ever been involved, Chris, in documenting anything for archaeological work as opposed to for uh, for the software products that you've worked for? You mean just documenting processes like this, that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. this, you know, a broader set where, yeah. you know, any particular piece of software mm. is one component of a broader system. Sure. I mean, almost never, to be honest with you. It's just not something that, I don't know, it's just not something that people do and, and we should, you know? Absolutely. I think that it's it's really yeah. important. And so that's where I was excited by the article because, mm-hmm. uh, and again, by all these things that keep on showing up on my feed is because I think that this is a, a fairly overlooked aspect of archaeological research. Now, I could be entirely wrong with it when we get to the, the very sciencey, techy things, people who are doing uh, radiocarbon, people who are doing um, you know, DNA analyses, different kinds of chemical analyses and so on, they probably within their own labs have very explicit protocols for how to get a reproducible result, how to use that special widget that costs you know $10,000 is sitting in the corner there. Yeah. But this is also something slightly different because those are often private documentation, right? It's for my lab because it's written by me for my coworkers so that they can all know how to use the, you know these three pieces of equipment that we own. Whereas this article is much more broad than that. It's uh, you know and also the things that again have been showing up on my feed are much broader. They're they're how to 
acquire and implement a whole set of different tools to make yeah. a, a desired outcome, which is for me a slight shift. I mean, even the documentation I've done that's a little broader, the stuff you know that I've done to, for for Dalton for the school I worked at that that involved you know five different pieces of software to get an end result, it's it's still in-house stuff. It's not something that I could then turn around and show somebody that didn't work at the same school and have it be immediately useful for them. They would have to reinterpret yeah. it for their own use. Right. And and that's that's one thing. I mean, they even point this out in the article, right? That there's something like six programs they're using to actually process the, the UAV mm-hmm. imagery and then make the high resolution digital train modules. But, yep. you know, that's something you got to remember in the early days of some of these technologies, at least early for archaeology, that if you do want to try this out on the cheap or free, well, there's probably going to be some extra hoops you got to jump through to make these things work because that's how free works. <laughs> if you want to, <laughs> if you want to buy the Cadillac, and have all the features pre-installed when it when it delivers, then you're paying for the Cadillac. But if you want to try this out, but not spend any money, and and you'll need a, a little bit more expertise, then I mean, to be honest, this isn't the only thing that's going to require you to do that. Other technologies and and I guess things that you do will usually require you to kind of bootstrap this and 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 put a bunch of things together to make it work. And I'm glad there's people out there, like you said, that are willing to do that hard work. They don't look at a problem and say, well, that's too expensive. Let's do something else. They say, how can we do this and test it so other people can? And and then they document this process, like you said, which leads me to another question for you, Paul. Where is your article in advances? Are you, are you writing it right now for your processes that you're doing right now so people can learn from you? Where's, where's your article? Uh, I'm not writing it right now, but I <laughs> think I will be soon. I just sent an email nice. a couple hours ago to the project director asking her for permission to do that. The problem I have yes. is uh, is not writing the article. I can certainly document, again, because for me, it's going to be primarily documentation. I can document sure. all the steps to generate the same results or virtually the same results or to replicate the same process on another site. But it's been so long since I've written for an academic audience that my writing style has gotten totally divergent. (laughs) And so that's going to be a problem for me is to bring that back in. I mean, I I know how to cite, but I don't have a stock of articles and books and things I can cite. I've read them, mm-hmm. but I didn't read them with the mind toward, you know, being able to pull quotes or to, you know, to reference them later in an article. I read them out of my own right. interest. And so now I'm, in a way, I'm a little bit of a crick. But no, I, I definitely do want to document the uh, the survey procedure end to end, really, from yeah. how I drew the map and decided on the density of the survey, how we conducted the survey in the field, how we processed the the artifacts that we collected, and then how I generated the heat maps after that. Because the results were really good, and I do think that it's really replicable. And I think that if I can set out a set of instructions for people, probably in the same journal, because it seems to me the most appropriate for this, that would be uh, a good thing. But mm-hmm. no, I, uh, I'm, I'm not there yet. Uh, I do want to actually, I'll backtrack a little too. I thought when you were talking about free and open source software, something I hadn't really grasped with, but it just kind of tickled the back of my head, is that it used to be 15, maybe 20 years ago, the notion of free software was free meant cheap. And cheap, not as an inexpensive, but as in not as good as software that you pay for. Right. Right. And now, and this article does demonstrate that, it's no longer 
free means not good. It mm-hmm. means not as easy to install, not as easily supported, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, it doesn't mean by any stretch not as good. And so that's to me an interesting shift. It's like where, where the balance in that decision matrix goes now. It's 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 mm-hmm. different than it used to be. And as somebody that uses a lot of free and open source software and contributes to some open source projects, maintains a couple now. Uh <laughs> I <laughs> I'm happy to see that change. I'm happy to yeah. not have to fight that battle. To not say, oh, we can either do the cheap thing that that that's free, or we can do the expensive thing that's going to be good. Do we want good results or do we want you know cheap results? Well, that's right. not the balance anymore. Yeah, you're right, and I think there's a there's a little bit of a caution there too, though, because there there is still truly truly you know cheap software out there cheap or free that is just like not written very well but that's why you read mm-hmm. articles like this and you you know you get into the communities like you're in where people are talking about this kind of thing and saying well this is good this is good because there's some really really solid people out there that are committed to the idea that some of this stuff you know to the open source idea you know the open source yeah. this can be modified by you know by anyone with the skills to do it and people can add to it, you know, you can, you can create these things and you don't have to to set out to make a billion dollars while you're doing it. Cause I mean, more than like you're not going to anyway. So, you know, there's that. Yeah, I agree. It, there's, there's some really good stuff out there these days and it can be found by, you know, crowdsourcing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. It's uh it's, it's a good thing again. Uh, please for back to the question about the, uh, about documentation as mm-hmm a variation on this open source world. You know, I, I've mentioned a few times now that that, that I've been getting lots of different <laughs> feeds of different documentation. One that's popped up a few times, actually two, are, um, are on a site called protocols.io. And these two are SOAP, the Small Object and Artifact Photography Protocol, and nice. the HRP, the High Resolution DIY Photogrammetry. I don't know where the D went from uh, <laughs> DIY in that HRP, but <laughs> right. anyhow, these are similar sorts of things published on a site that's dedicated to that. Now, that site, Protocol.io, is mostly geared towards people, towards laboratory scientists, but it does have, uh, as of my check earlier, almost 20 archaeology tagged protocols on their site. And so that might be a good place. And you, you'd mentioned when we were talking about open source software is, you know, find the communities. Well, one of the big problems with any of the open source stuff, especially with the finding of the documentation, is where do you look? Where do you find that community? Do you go to Reddit? Do you go to Stack Exchange? Do you go to the to the wiki of the website that of the that made the or is distributing the software? Mm-hmm. Is there an email address? You know, who who knows? It it can vary really widely, and the quality of those communities can vary really widely. Sure, but this discoverability is then another part of open source, open access. And if you've documented a procedure that's a good procedure, and you want people to see it, and you want people to work with it, and maybe adapt it to their own, maybe use it straight out of the box the way that you've done it, but apply it to their own research, you got to have it someplace where they're going to see it. So this article, again, is in a place that people will see it. It's an open access article. It links to a GitHub project, which or repository rather, which is by the nature of GitHub. It's also open. You could take their protocol there and adjust it to your own needs. You can see it. It's 
right there for everybody to see. You know, I would personally, it, it relies on a, it's done for Mac. So I would be comfortable. I could, I could run it directly on my computers, but it uses a Linux installation engine, more or less called homebrew. And I don't use homebrew. I have no problem with homebrew. I just don't care to use it. I would always rather either compile or find different installers rather than use homebrew on my own machines. I don't know why I have that prejudice. I just do. (laughs) But I do know the pieces of software that they have. And I Mm -hmm. could install all of those without homebrew. So I could take their protocol. I could fork it so that you could do that same installation without homebrew. I could fork it so that I could install one of my uh, Linux boxes pretty easily. Because again, it's all documented and it's reliant at every step of that process on open source software and on an open documentation of how to do it. Yeah. So, yeah. So they have it on two ends, you know, on the AAP article that's open, they have it on the GitHub repository that's open. These ones that I mentioned, SOAP and HRP are on protocols.io, which is you can have your own internal private protocols on their website, but you can mm-hmm. also, it's mostly, I think, intended for open source ones. And I was thinking then too about other open access, open source, easily accessible. Where do you where do people find what to do? I've got a huge playlist in my YouTube uh, <laughs> channel of different videos yeah. I want to see of different people, some of whom have been guests on this show, explaining how to do X, Y, or Z in uh, in Grass or in QGIS or in R or whatever. And YouTube, geez, YouTube videos are huge. How-to videos on YouTube are absolutely huge. I don't know how often you, Chris, end up on WikiHow, like when something goes wrong in the RV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah. you know, I end up on WikiHow a lot. So that discoverability, anyhow, that that's something else that I think that we have to keep in mind. Because yes, you could host it on your own blog. You could host a, your your set of instructions on a self hosted wiki or something. But maybe that's not always the best place. But I don't think that we as an archaeological community have rested on any one platform. Right. Yeah. I mean, another place that I think would be very sensible would be Read the Docs. I end mm-hmm. up on Read the Docs all the time for different software because it's the preferred place for documentation for Python projects. And since I mostly mostly program with Python, I end up on theirs all the time. I don't know if that makes sense for archaeologists. Right now, protocols.io to me seems like it makes the most sense for archaeologists. GitHub to a lesser extent, but in intriguing ways, it also makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I don't know what, I don't think there's an answer there, but I do think that we're probably over the next year or two, as we start seeing more things like this project, there'll be a consolidation around one or two different places as the go to places to find open source documentation. Right. Okay. Well, I think with that, we will take our final break. And I'll just remind everybody did you go and sign up for your membership yet? If not, arcpodnet.com forward slash members so we can keep all this going. And we've got more podcasts we want to do, more live events we want to do. And having some member supported income on that is uh, what makes all that possible. So we will see you guys back in just a minute to wrap up this discussion. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to episode 180 of the Archaeotech podcast. And, you know, Paul, something I want to comment on, as you're mentioning right at the close of the last segment, was about using YouTube to learn stuff, right? We all do that, mm-hmm. right? We all, I mean... Uh, to be honest, my go-to for RV stuff, because there's a lot of YouTube RVers out there, is, you know, just YouTube my problem. And chances are I'll find a hundred different videos on that topic and I can kind of pick and choose. It's a little bit understood that when you go to YouTube for something like that, you are going to pick and choose. You can kind of look at the, maybe look at the likes and the comments and stuff like that and say, okay, so this one, you know, is a little more, this one came out last week and, and they have two videos. I don't know if I'm going to trust that one as much. This one has 300 videos and and 85,000 likes on it. So maybe that one's a little more trustworthy, although that is not a measure of anything either. Maybe they're just weird and people like that. (laughs) So, (laughs) but the funny thing is, it's this weird thing on the internet and in people's psyches about certain sites. So for example, YouTube is seen as a place where you can go to learn stuff, understanding the fact that things might be crazy over there. But when you tell somebody that, you know, you're linking to like a Wikipedia article or something like that, they're like, oh, you can't trust Wikipedia. It's total garbage. Like, you know, mm-hmm. because it's because it's written by other people. And it's like, how is that? It's actually it's actually like peer reviewed by a, by a lot of people. You know, sure. If somebody gets in there and writes something and it's not checked or seen, you know, by some of the Wikipedia warriors out there in a short order, then, yes, some misinformation could definitely be put out, especially about political figures and topics and stuff like that. People love going in and just making changes to articles and then, mm-hmm. you know, seeing how long that sticks. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but chances are it's not going to stick for long, which is kind of the whole point of Wikipedia. And I just I just find it as an interesting thing when I was thinking about when you're talking about YouTube that nobody nobody really thinks of Wikipedia for serious stuff just because it's seen as a place where it can be easily altered. I'm like, what about YouTube videos? You're not even checking. They don't even list their sources on a YouTube video. Right. You know, well, some do, but but most people don't. So and then I guess I guess the other thing I was thinking about is, man, there is a business here, isn't there? Because some of the things you've been talking about today, I really only have knowledge of because I've either, you know, I've worked around coders a lot uh, when I had my office at the Reno Collective, listening to you talk about a lot of this stuff, you know, to be honest, listening to this podcast has has taught me a number of things because I just don't regularly go to, you know, I've been on the GitHub website before, but I've only been there because somebody sent me a link to go do something or I, I click on a link in these articles, but I've never submitted anything over there, used anything over there. And some of these other things you're talking about, like I have zero experience with all that stuff. And, and somebody listening to this or reading an article like this, man, their brain is just going to like light on fire when they're thinking about these things because they just they just don't even know where to start. You know what I mean? And while these things might be getting easier through time, as things like this do, 
it really seems like there's a market for somebody to, you know, somebody that owns a company that could set these things up and either even run them for other companies and other people that would ultimately, obviously it would ultimately have to save them money in some way, shape or form, either them trying to figure out how to set it up or the process itself saves them money because that's why you pay for services to get done is because you can't do it as cheaply and it'll save you money. But I don't know. Have you heard of anybody kind of setting out to do this as a service or is it largely academic still? I think it's largely academic, but um, you mentioned peer review and at the risk of now sounding like um, advertising for protocols.io, those two (laughs) protocols, both at the top say peer reviewed. Oh, okay. And they're done, they're cited like articles. You know, you see the names sure. of the authors, you see their their institutional affiliations. It's not some random dude sitting in front of his computer. It mm-hmm. is actual, you know, scientific researchers saying, hey, this works in our lab. If you want to reproduce it, here are the steps that you can do to reproduce it in your lab. Sure. And that's really good. We don't have that with, with GitHub. And that's why I kind of, I'm very intrigued by the protocols.io one, but I, I don't really care one way or the other. I just don't want it to be 97 different places to go to. I'd much <laughs> rather have it be a handful of places open again so that you know we can share what works and what doesn't work for us uh, as as researchers, as archaeologists. Like one of the big things, and this is uh, again an aside, but uh, everything I say is an aside, uh, <laughs> that really gets me is, is with GIS work is how do you document your procedures? I had a number of images in my uh, visualizations, rather, in my dissertation that I went ahead and made a cookbook as an appendix in my uh, at the end of the, the dissertation, so that people could reproduce my imagery in uh, in grass, mm-hmm. which is what I did them in. And I've had to refer to those a few times over the years when I can't remember what to do because typically when you like generate a new layer in GIS based off of a transformation from an old layer, there there is no internal documentation of what that process was, what what module you use, what settings you use, any of that stuff. So right. I've been lately I've been documenting that internally by just making notes for each of the layer, but that mm-hmm. also feels extremely fragile. And I would love if the, the, there was some way of exposing the stuff that happens internally within the GIS out to some public venue so that it becomes quite easy then for somebody else to follow along, try the same settings, maybe the same inputs for the data sources, maybe their own data source inputs, but be able to follow along with the same settings and generate something comparable. I think that would be hugely important, but I haven't seen anything like that. So actually, this is an open invitation for any of our listeners. If I'm just blind to something that everybody else does, or if there's something new out there that does this already that I haven't heard of, I would love to know about it because I think this is critically important for the kind of work I've been doing lately and will be doing going forward. Back to the article, mm-hmm. the authors, you know, not only do they talk about the using the fully free and open source path, including open drone map versus the mostly free and open source, except for the one big expensive thing using uh, Metashape PhotoScan. They also talk about different different software for the drone mapping. And so th- that was another thing that actually I appealed to me. They use uh, Drone Deploy for actually flying the drone. And right. this is software that gets installed on the controller, actually on your phone or tablet that's mm-hmm. 
usually attached to the controller. And and that, that's what they're using. Drone Deploy is not free software. It's closed source. I use it in, in Iraq. It's excellent. Where they make their money is you can have the free controller software, but they make their money by having an easy path to upload that's the, the photos that you've taken into their website and have it do all the processing for you. So you don't have to have your own fancy computer. You just have to have an internet connection. Right. And you know, they do great with that, but they're but that's what the authors are not doing. They're not doing the end-to-end with drone deploy. That drone deploy part, uh, and they mention it, there are a number of different programs that you can use instead, you know, installed on your phone or tablet that you're using Mm -hmm. uh, when you're actually out in the field flying. I've been testing one lately called Maps Made Easy because they have drivers for the the drone that I've got, the Phantom 3 standard, which is an older drone and a lot of ones don't have it. So if you're looking at things to try to replicate this, you don't have to go strictly with drone deploy. You could go with any of a number of their probably dozens of different ones out there. You just have to be cognizant of whether or not they support your drone. I, that should be obvious, but um, might not yeah. necessarily be. But that also, that introduces a, a kind of variability that is going to change a little bit of the process too. You know, Let me give you an example. Drawing the maps of where you're going to fly. Now, when you when you do a, a photogrammetry drone mission, it, you typically program the area that you want and the elevation, and it knows the uh, the camera that you have, and you tell it what kind of overlap between one picture and the next, and then it will draw a zigzag pattern that goes across that area that that meets all those parameters. Mm-hmm. So drone deploy, you do that right in their software, or you do it on the web, you download it onto the tablet, you're good to go. The DJI Phantom 4 RTK that we use in the field doesn't have a way of installing drone deploy on it. So right. your choices are either use the DJI program that's built in to do all that same thing, draw the, the outline, set the elevation, the overlap, blah, 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 and have it do it, or else you can use drone deploy and then do like what I did, write a little uh, script <laughs> that will take and translate their thing into a KML that I can import into this, but I can't install drone deploy. So that's a bit of a pain. Prior to this RTK, we had a DJI Phantom 4 V2 Pro. The V2 Pro has a built-in attached tablet on the controller that doesn't have that piece of DJI software to do that, that flight plan. No way of using that drone <laughs> with any yeah. mapping software, which is, you know, uh, that, that's a problem. So, uh, you know, yeah. this is just another kind of a side warning in this case is that if you're buying a drone for something like this, you might want to steer away from a drone that has a controller that has a built-in screen because you probably can't get the mapping software onto that screen if it's not already built in. Mm-hmm. So even though there's dozens of different things out there, like Drone Deploy, like Maps Made Easy, like Litchi, like whatever. Actually, Litchi doesn't do that kind of plan. It doesn't matter. You might not actually be able to use them <laughs> for a variety of reasons. I don't know. That's my little rant. Is it just that the the onboard like DJI software is just like not up to snuff for really commercial use? Because they're they're really trying to hit commercial users with some of this stuff, right? Like they really have a you know a hard advertising campaign for mm-hmm. the commercial use of their drones. And it would surprise me that for the ones with the built-in screen, unless those ones are not necessarily geared towards commercial users, they're geared towards 
you know, more towards hobbyists, but archaeologists tend to buy them because they're cheaper, which might be the case, that it, that it wouldn't be up to snuff for what you needed to use, you know? Yeah, I think it's not the notion of the commercial user versus the non-commercial user. It's the kind of commerce, right? Mm-hmm. So DJI, they're things that are designed for mapping, for agricultural uses, for the photogrammetric mapping like we we're talking about. They have their own program built into that controller that you're okay. expected to use. The ones that aren't designed for those, but have the built-in controller are for the photographers. And so they have software that's similar, but it flies paths that, you know, point around an object, follow me, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. but not a regular flight plan that's going to get you, you know, at a hundred meters, 60% overlap over these five hectares. <laughs> right, right. So it's a different use case. And it turns out that the ones that don't have those built-in controllers are more flexible because you can then install on your Android or your iOS device any of all these different programs you want, provided that they are compatible with your drone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that should all be obvious, but I haven't seen it spelled out. And I've seen people accidentally buy the wrong kind of drone because they think it can do what it can, what they want it to do. And in the abstract, it can, but they can't get the damn software on the controller to do what they want it to do. <laughs> right. So another thing that, that they talk about, you know, we're talking about open drone map versus photo scan. And I thought it was interesting that they go with open drone map in their example, which is a command line program. And I've been playing mm-hmm. a lot with uh, aerial photogrammetry lately myself, not using drone deploy, but using stuff installed on my own computers. And I settled on WebODM, which is a side project of Open Drone Map, and it's a web-based front end to ODM, and it's uh, it's been really good for me, much more intuitive than Open Drone Map, which gets us back to this whole question that we we're talking about with free and open source software about usability and support and such. And I'm finding WebODM's usability, even though I love command line programs, when I tried Open Drone Map, I was just a little bit at sea and web ODM it just was obvious the interface was so easy to me that, uh, that I went with that yeah so now yeah, for what it's worth that would be another thing if I were to take their instructions and fork it a little bit maybe I'd fork it in that direction just to make it a little friendlier for the user but again having it all command line makes it easier to be scriptable so mm-hmm. there, there's definitely something to be said for that okay well that's good so one of the last things you have in our notes here is a pro tip for marking different batches of photos from the authors. Let's talk about that. Okay. So this one here, it, it wasn't in the article. It was on their GitHub page. And okay. I love just little tips like this that just are so <laughs> obvious. So I'm going to share two, yeah. one that wasn't on theirs and one that is. And I don't know if I shared the first one before, but I've been telling everybody out here is that if you're doing... <laughs> photogrammetry, like across a field, across a site, across a large area, you typically use ground control points and you can purchase Mm -hmm. them, whatever. Surveyor was telling me that what he uses are those black and white kitchen tiles, the vinyl tiles. Yeah. They cost about a dollar each. They're a foot across. You can place the point of of your GPS or your total station prism right mm-hmm. there on the, the cross in the middle. <laughs> they nice. work perfectly as, uh, yeah, just absolutely brilliant, simple little hack. Yeah. And so the author's pro tip on their GitHub page is, for me, feels the same way. With Drone Deploy, when you 
tell it to go do its flight, it takes a photograph right as it's taking off. I mean, just before it mm-hmm. takes off. Uh, so you'll have all the other photographs will be straight down, you know, from the air, but there'll be one that'll be, you know, the grass or the dirt right in front of the drone. I think that Maps Made Easy that their Map Pilot Pro does the same thing because that's what I was playing with. I'm not sure if I accidentally hit the shutter or not. Regardless of whether your software does this automatically or not, they suggested taking a whiteboard and writing on that whiteboard what the mission was. Sure. Putting that in front of the drone so that that first picture <laughs> is the mission and mm-hmm. then it goes and flies the mission and has that way you don't have to sit there and look at, you know, six, seven hundred photographs and try to figure out where the barrier is between the first mission I flew today and where it is with the second mission. Yes. <laughs> it's just it's- simple little hack that is so obvious once you hear it and so brilliant. And I love that. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I've been doing a, a variation on that. Well, I guess not a variation with some things that I've done in the past. And one one way that we actually currently use that in the RV. And, and we've posted some of this on our RVing YouTube channel, but I'm, I'm way behind on a lot of it. But we still record it is we record a time lapse video from the center bottom of the windshield of the RV every time we drive. And mm-hmm. I've taken those videos and added little commentaries to them and put them up on the uh, our YouTube channel for people traveling a certain route that maybe they want to see it in real time. Well, in rapid time in time lapse view before they drive it, you know, it just might be a fun little thing to, to have access to. But I'll tell you what, you know, by the time I fill up the card, I've got like a, I don't know, like a 256 gigabyte card inside the GoPro and time lapse for like, like a six hour time lapse only takes like 20 minutes. And so it takes a long time to fill up that card. And by the time I get it done, I'm like, where the hell did this start and end? So (laughs) most of the time now, I actually finger right on the iPad what the route is. We're going from this point to this point. And when we turn on the time lapse, it's the first thing that you see. That way I can easily identify the video and, and be able to tell where it goes. Otherwise, I've got a either, you know, go back and look at our navigational history and find out where we've been and where we're going and, you know, what was the next place that we went and, you know, look at road signs and try to figure it out. It's a real pain in the ass. So yeah, being proactive on your organization is, uh, saves you a lot of time on the back end. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly can. And, uh, and I think that that's in a microcosm, I think that's the benefit of, of an article like this and about Mm -hmm. the protocol that they did. They're being proactive by telling you beforehand, Hey, these are the steps. And uh, and you can just play along. <laughs> nice, nice. All right. Well, I love the conversation that this article inspired for us. And, and I hope it does for you guys as well, listening to this. And, you know, hopefully it encourages some people to go out and check out some alternative solutions. And at the very least, you know, take a look at this article if it's something you're interested in doing and see how they did this. And the nice thing about the suite of software that they used is you could probably slot other pieces in for each one of these steps. If maybe you prefer, you know, something else or you think something else might work a little better, you know, try it. And more important than try it is tell people about it. <laughs> tell people how yes. it went, good or bad. <laughs> so, and, and if you're not into writing an academic paper, then just come on the podcast and let's talk about it. So that, that'll that be better than, better than nothing and just doing it in the, in the dark. So any final thoughts on this, Paul? No, hundred percent. Share, share your, show your notes, <laughs> share your work. <laughs> uh, we'll all benefit. It'll make the field stronger. Yeah. Indeed. All right. We got an interview coming up next time, and it's a little bit outside of archaeology, but closely tied to education and the stuff that we should be learning. So I'm pretty excited about that. 
We'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster and Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening. Please consider joining our growing core of members over at archpodnet.com slash members. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a review wherever you're listening to this. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.